Hello and welcome to Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and you are listening to a free preview of today's episode. So, Bill, broadly speaking, here, what should we know about the results of the Taiwan elections this past weekend, and the reaction we've seen from the PRC and around the world over the past week? What interests you most? Well, um, first, congratulations to Taiwan for holding another. Um, uh, Free and fair election? Free and fair election that was actually quite smooth, and uh, they did a very good job of resisting all sorts of attempts at interference. Uh, You know, again, the the DPP candidate won. William Lai will be the new president. He gets inaugurated, I think, May 20th or thereabouts. So he's another four months or so before he actually becomes president. He's currently the vice president. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it is – so it's it's the third term in a row for uh, the DPP, the party that uh, Beijing effectively refuses to talk to because they see it as the pro-independence party. Uh, And, you know, this time though, over the last three elections, the share of the DPP vote, popular vote, has been declining. Um, And this time the the KMT, the main opposition – opposition party actually has one more seat in the legislature. Um, and so uh, it's going to be not that uh, William Lai is going to be a lame duck president, but he certainly doesn't have a, the kind of full mandate that the current president has. Uh, and so that, like I said, Monday, I think is is in many ways, given where the polling was headed, a president who from the DPP, but with a sort of a, you know, not controlling the, the, the parliament, um, is sort of the next best choice for Beijing. Um, right. But it doesn't solve the more fundamental issues from the PRC's perspective, which is the vast majority of the Taiwan populace has no interest in any sort of concept of quote-unquote reunification that the PRC side describes, it, even though plenty of people in Taiwan will say reunify. We never were unified, right? Mm-hmm. Taiwan is not part of China. I mean, there are, a Pew poll came out earlier this week, which uh, says very clearly only 3% of people in Taiwan think of themselves as primarily Chinese. Wow. So, I mean, in many ways, the population, it's drifting further and further away from the PRC. And so we're four days, five days after the election, the PRC, the initial response was very much you know, very critical of any countries that congratulated uh, William Lai and the DPP. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, President Biden said very explicitly said, we do not support Taiwan independence, which is what I think the most important thing a U.S. president could have said to the for the Chinese, the PRC side to hear. I also think we have to recognize there's been a lot of work from the PRC and the U.S. side about sort of managing the outcomes of the elections and the reactions. Um, the PLA took a break from its flying planes and putting ships around Taiwan. Mm-hmm. That, though, is now ramping up again. I think yesterday was the largest number since December, and then today there were even more. Um, and so we're starting to see sort of going back to displays of um, basically the fact that PLA, PLA will can you know fly and sail wherever they want around Taiwan is what is what I think they're trying to demonstrate. Um, and so, you know, we have yet to see since the election any additional economic penalties, although they're increasingly talk about potentially terminating this uh, economic cooperation framework agreement, this ECFA. Um, mm-hmm. That had been talked about before. They chipped away at some of the items, including that, and added tariffs back on some items, but they haven't gone wholesale, remove it. Um, there, again, has been talk that that may be coming. So I think we 
we it's still too early to say this is what the reaction is from the PRC side. I think they're I think it's they have to digest what happened. They have to figure out what makes the most sense from their perspective. I don't think though that given it the DPP president, I don't think we should expect to see a significant softening. I think they see opportunities to try and go after particular constituencies, the ones in the KMT, but uh, the general trajectory of sort of there there really is hard to see any political solution where the Taiwanese side goes willingly into an embrace with the PRC. I don't think that has changed. Right. Yeah. And I don't think anybody expected that to change. Um, it, it was a bit more measured as far as the PRC response than I think some people had feared based too, on the too early behavior. to tell, though. Yeah. It's early to tell. Yeah, it's been five days. Um, and yeah. for anyone who's new to this space, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi did a nice job articulating the broader PRC stance on Taiwan. He said that seeking Taiwan's independence is, quote, a dead end road as it seriously threatens the well-being of Taiwan compatriots, seriously harms the fundamental interests of the Chinese nation and will seriously undermine peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Wong said that China will eventually achieve complete reunification and Taiwan will return to the embrace of the motherland and that the international community, in accordance with the one China principle, will continue to support the just cause of the Chinese people in striving for national reunification and opposing the separatist activities of seeking Taiwan's independence. So one question I have more generally is, as dramatic as some of the PRC rhetoric sounds, from what I can tell, a lot of this is stock language that has been repeated for a, a long time on the PRC side. Is that accurate or is there, are there new wrinkles being added in the modern era here? No, I think that's generally accurate. I think one thing that, you know, there, there's always the debate of, is there a timeline where by a certain date, Taiwan has to be, quote unquote, reunited, uh, reunified with the mainland. And, you know, I think that some people said 2027. I I don't think that is accurate. Um, But I do think that we we really need to pay attention to, you know, Xi Jinping has made very clear he wants to achieve the renaissance of the Chinese nation, right? Mm -hmm. And included in that is Taiwan is part of the mainland. And he wants... Best I can tell, he very much wants this to occur, this this great renaissance. He wants it to occur during his lifetime. Okay. And, and so he is 70 plus, 70 in a few months. I think that, um, you know, realistically then you're looking at sometime in the next decade or so where there has to be, from his from his perspective at least, there has to be a resolution. And as we've talked about on this podcast repeatedly, I do think that the preference is for some sort of political solution because having to resort to force would be a failure, would be a sign that the PRC has failed in its attempts to attract Taiwan over to thinking that it makes sense to be part of this broader uh, PRC project. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think when you look at what the Chinese, the PRC side is doing, I think they are certainly putting in place the conditions that would allow them to take moves in the next few years that are not peaceful to force the absorption of Taiwan. Yeah. Um, But again, I don't think there's been a decision made. I don't think there's a, it's got to be in the next three to five years. But I think if you look out over the horizon and you look at this sort of, what is the likely period of Xi Jinping being in power? 
um, sometime during that period, assuming he stays in power, is when he will want to force some sort of resolution to this this issue. So then that would be the danger in looking at some of the caustic language coming from the PRC and saying, well, this is what they've said for decades now. And it sounds like there is actually more urgency or could be more urgency to get it done. Well, the PRC is is at the point, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they just didn't have the capability, the capacity yeah. to force the issue um, that's very different. I think one of the things, though, of course, is, again, going back to what Russia did with Ukraine and the invasion, uh, it's been very educational for the PRC side in terms of how the rest of the world reacts to, to that kind of a attack mm-hmm. and how you would need to harden your economy and your financial system to be able to withstand the massive uh, sanctions that would come from much of the developed uh, developed world economies. Yep. Well, and then... There's also in in the short term here, uh, the reactions, you mentioned it, various countries were congratulating William Lai on his victory. And after Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, congratulated Lai and the DPP, the foreign ministry said his comments send a gravely wrong signal to the Taiwan independence separatist forces. We strongly deplore and firmly oppose this. And then Blinken was at Davos where he was being interviewed by Andrew Ross Sorkin, and he was asked about that reaction. And he said, China has to make decisions about what it will do and what it won't do. But I think that the approach that they've shown in recent years has actually been totally counterproductive to their interests. By trying to exert pressure on Taiwan, economic pressure, military pressure, diplomatic pressure, isolation, it's only reinforced many of the very people they don't want to reinforce. And to that end, I wanted to read this note from NBC that actually ran before the election. They write, William Lai, the front runner in the presidential race, criticized the crackdown in Hong Kong on Tuesday, saying that if China were successful in intervening in Taiwan, quote, Taiwan's democracy will not exist. Rather than electing a president, Lai said, Taiwan would be electing a chief executive just like Hong Kong. Jaw Shaw Kong, the vice presidential candidate for the opposition KMT, pointed to the internationally criticized national security trial of Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Jimmy Lai and the record low turnout in Hong Kong's, quote, patriots only district council elections last month. Quote, if Beijing treats Hong Kong in this manner, the people in Taiwan are watching, he told reporters yesterday. And then another citizen was interviewed. He says, I would still be cautious in my voting choices when thinking of the lessons Hong Kong learned after 2019, said Huang, a Taipei-based doctor who wanted only his last name used for fear of being arrested for his comments, quote, if Taiwan becomes a second Hong Kong. And that's one aspect of the Taiwan situation that I didn't fully appreciate until I started reading more as we've been hosting these podcasts and just talking to people. As much as this has been sensitive for decades, uh, it does seem like one reason it's become more sensitive and more polarized on the ground in Taiwan, and and one reason this diplomatic solution is likely untenable, is because of what's happened to Hong Kong in recent years and, and the way that's opened everyone's eyes in Taiwan in terms of the threats posed by China long term. Does that make sense to you? No, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, you know, I think where the Secretary of State Blinken is wrong is just that, you know, there isn't really anything the PRC side can do to change people's views, whether they're, they've been nice before or nicer, mm-hmm. uh, they've been harsher, they've been threatening. 
um, the, the reality is, is most people in Taiwan just want to be left alone. Yeah. And, you know, the Hong Kong example has, of course, it's a very negative example for what would happen under some sort of one country, two systems kind of framework. Uh, and so I think that the Hong Kong has only made the, um, the political sale from the PRC side that much more impossible. I mean, the, the, the VP candidate you quoted from, you know, Charles Shaw Kong from the, from the KMT side, you know, even for even, even the KMT had to basically say this kind of stuff, even though historically right. they've been the ones that are more, you know, they're the preferred party from the, from the CPC side. And so, um, again, I think the reality is just that Beijing, short of pushing this into the next generation, which predecessors, these predecessors had effectively done, but she doesn't seem really likely to do, there has to be, from, the, from Xi's perspective, it really looks like there has to be some sort of resolution in the next decade or decade in a few years, and the trends are all going the wrong way for any sort of a political accommodation. Right. Well, and and that's what's worrisome. And you can look at the way China has behaved in Hong Kong. And I, I think it is sort of consistent with the Blinken answer, where to the extent China is concerned about separatist forces in Taiwan, in a lot of cases, it's been Chinese actions that have legitimized those forces to a sort of an unprecedented degree in the modern era, because they could just point to an increasingly right authoritarian state in Hong Kong, but the you know what's the expression? Leopard doesn't change the spots. They're not gonna. They're not gonna change what they're doing in Hong Kong. They're not gonna change how they run the PRC. And so um, it, it's true that what they do has repelled a lot of people. I think on Taiwan, mm-hmm. but it's also not reasonable to think that they're gonna change their approach in a sort of a real substantive way because that's just not how they roll. All right. And that is the end of the free preview. If you'd like to hear the rest of today's conversation and get access to full episodes of Sharp China each week, you can go to your show notes and subscribe to either Bill's newsletter, Cynicism, or the Stratechery Bundle, which includes several other podcasts from me and daily writing from my friend Ben Thompson. I'm an incredibly biased news consumer, so I think both are indispensable resources. But either way, Bill and I are going to be here every week talking all things China, and we would love to have you on board. So check out your show notes, subscribe, and we will talk to you soon. 